viruses. Please educate yourself on the holistic and comprehensive science on what viruses actually are. Empower yourself with the knowledge about the reality of the relationship of pandemic situations like the coronavirus and human health. Welcome to the Vital Vader Show. We are bringing you a very pressing episode which needs to be attended to now. And it's like an emergency podcast. And I've just, you know, adjusted the schedule and this this has jumped the queue in terms of release dates. And the emergency is not the coronavirus itself, but the fear of it and the panic around this pandemic. And essentially the ignorance of microbiome and the reality of Health and microbiome needs to be understood. So, please educate yourself. If you know anyone who is fearful of the coronavirus or any virus as a matter of fact or any parasite or any microbe, please share within this episode. And people who don't even know. I, I was at a dinner party the other, a few nights ago and they are like, oh, I don't know what to think. Those people also need to hear this because you should be confident strong, stable, stable like a kuffa, which is the body type, which is just stable like a rock and gives a little smirk at what's going on. All right, my dear friends, we're going to get it into it. For those who don't know me, my name is Dylan Smith. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner and holistic health educator based in Sydney, Australia, travel around the world. And I also make my knowledge, wisdom, travel around the internet, around the world, through podcast, Instagram, newsletter, all that jazz. So, you know, I'm so happy that Jimmy attended to this emergency. I literally um, messaged him and I'm like, Jimmy, I'm going away in a few days and I want to get this podcast out ASAP. Can we do one on coronavirus? So kindly he found the time. And, you know, out of I couldn't think of really anyone better than Jimmy to do a podcast and give a little slap of reality to everyone about what actually is microbiome, what actually is viruses, and of course, what's going on with this coronavirus. Who is this wonderful Dr. Jimmy Wallenbim? Well, whether he's presenting at the UN or at a village health cooperative in rural India, Jimmy is a highly engaging speaker, as always, as well as a writer and an educator. He's got 19 years of clinical experience and almost as much in community development. Jimmy combines his deep knowledge of holistic medicine with a passion for social causes and world health. He's the social entrepreneur that founded One Health Organization in 2005 and since then he has started to become the largest and holistic integrative healthcare NGO in the world, having distributed roughly 9 metric tons of medicines to hundreds of thousands of disadvantaged communities across the globe. Jimmy's private clients value his obvious passion for traditional medical practices and the way in which he combines aspects of the traditions of India, China, Tibet, Persia and that continue to inspire him. This is Jimmy's second appearance on the show. He's actually the first guest to have a reappearance. I'm stoked for that. And there's definitely so, definitely more to come with Jimmy because he's got so much herbs. So much herbs, of course, but so much knowledge as well about herbs. Um, we talk about herbs. Um, we don't go into great detail, but listen at the end. I'm going to share with you my Ayurvedic formulas, which I recommend for boosting immunity in general and also dealing with viruses, colds, flus, all that good to have in hand. We talk about the importance of herbs. They really are important to know and and ideally you have a practitioner that's prescribing them to you um, rather than self-prescribing. And if you are going to self-prescribe, you know, be well educated on what they're doing and, and perhaps rather get formulas. It's always better to take generally herbs and formulas. They're more safe that way more holistic so 
yeah, I just really want to emphasize if you dig this work and I'm sure you feel the need to share it because of the fear and panic that people are in, which is the real problem of this coronavirus outbreak, um, share it man, and subscribe, leave a review. All right. So if you want to check out the other episode I did with Jimmy, it's episode number seven. It's called Alchemizing the Essence of Traditional Medicines. And it's literally that we unpack all cool things about a variety of traditional medicines. And that's what's wonderful about Jimmy with all his experiences, dabbed into it all and becoming well acquainted. So check it out. Check out all the other episodes out. Um, check out the Vital Veda events page on the website. We're going to be all around Australia and New Zealand with my teachers, the Raja family, who's going to equip you with some preventative healing and strengthen you so you can radiate vitality in your health and your mind and also cure or any help towards cure of anything that really needs to be, you really need to get get over with, put the finger down on it. Um and there's so many more events. I'll be in Melbourne at the end of March and mid-April. Check that all out. We're going to get into this essential episode. Thanks for joining me. Much love. Okay, so thanks so much, Jimmy, for the short notice because this is a slight emergency podcast episode and I'm going to see... I've got one scheduled for next week, but I'm going to see if we can change the scheduling of them all to get this out. And the emergency is to do with coronavirus, but it is not the coronavirus itself that is the emergency. It is the fear of this virus and the fear that's been absolutely brought out of proportion and the essentially the ignorance on microbiome and, and, health, and the reality of health. So... Thank you for attending to the need of the time. The fact that it's a pandemic is um, is very apt because um, the word pan in pandemic, as well as meaning all, as in all people, it also comes from the Greek god Pan. And um, Pan is the god of nature. But um, when he roars, he also instills great fear. And the fear that he instills is called panic. Uh, when when pan roars, people experience panic, and so the this is a pandemic of panic that we're experiencing at the moment, and um, and probably the panic is more dangerous than the virus, uh, quite possibly. I'm like I really thought of you, and and I was waiting for you to also do posts on this to share with these people who are who are panicking, because you really are the man. For, you're one of the mans for microbiome knowledge and, and and wisdom and you you essentially were writing a book but you you stopped right you didn't finish writing a book on microbiome so hopefully we can get some snippets from that and your wisdom around that um that's right and i think the um the point to remember is that in addition to the probiome of bacteria that lives in our gut that has a beneficial role um we also exist symbiotically um, with viruses and um, we have a virome as well and the human virome is less studied over the last decade but it's getting studied more and more and so there's there's a relationship that we need to cultivate between us and the viruses of the world wonderful and i'll add also as well as viruses and bacteria which we're already familiar with is also parasites and fungi all in involved in this environment so the human virome is what we're discussing and um, our, there's, there's a relationship that exists between human beings and um, the planetary virome. So viruses uh, exist all over the planet and um, 
An interesting thing is that we have um, kind of dismissed their uh, their uh, meeting the criteria for life in the past. We've thought they're not even alive. They're just dumb, just little chunks of uh, pure DNA. But actually, it it could be the case that they're they're the the driving force of all evolution on this planet, um, and that they're in a, a tight relationship with bacteria. And 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 what I mean here is that. Um, evolution doesn't just take place through the slow kind of Darwinian process, but through leaps and bounds. And genes don't just change uh, through your line, but they also change across species. And this is how we get these big changes, these big leaps uh, taking place, evolutionary speaking. And um, and this is called horizontal gene transfer. And what happens is that viruses can essentially sort of take DNA out of uh, one species and put them into another species or viruses are constantly trying to find their way into our own genome. And so we're getting, and we, ha- I think we have like 30 or 40% at last count of our own genome that is viral in origin. So a lot of what makes us us is, is viral and viruses are moving around as an important part of how all of life evolves and they connect all species together. And what we see as diseases are also the process of evolution at work as we're attempting to incorporate, literally embody a whole new piece of information, genetic information. And if that information is badly packaged, then the host will die and the, and the virus will die and it doesn't get to spread. So it's not in the virus's interest to be too, too harsh, right? What the virus wants is to happily live inside your genome, at least a whole bunch of these viruses, so that it can be immortalised inside your species. So when we get a viral infection, we're potentially, it's not just a healing crisis at an individual level, as a lot of acute diseases are seen, but it's also we're participating in the process of, of the evolution of life and the give and take, the flow of genetic information across species um, that, is, that is helping with uh, the, the whole dialogue and the whole journey that all of life is on this planet. And I think it's important for us not just to cast microbes as bad guys that are out to kill us, and they have nothing better do, to do than just to infect us and make our life miserable, but that there's a larger process underway here and viruses are very, very uh, central to the entire process. That's wonderful and, yeah, beautiful. And adding to that essential part of the process, I believe even viruses are used to, as medicine, like specifically to treat antibiotic-resistant bacteria, like MRSA. Have you, have you come across that? They can be, they can be, and they're also uh, a process of uh, genetic engineering, essentially using viruses to insert, uh, to do what they do naturally, and um, but to do it for us, to insert uh, bits of genetic sequences uh, into genomes. These viruses and all this bacteria, we it's all part of us, as you just said, and we obviously want to make that part of us in a symbiotic, harmonious manner, rather than it becoming virulent and pathogenic. So in that sense, I guess what would be, I get foundationally important is the environment that's hosting these viruses and microbiome. That's right. And so there's this other beautiful piece about viruses that I think your listeners are really going to love hearing about. And that is that um, uh, as well, like I said, uh, when I first studied um, all of this stuff, uh, viruses, you know, were considered sort of dumb and not even potentially alive. 
But with recent advances, what we found is that um, rather than looking at viruses as individual organisms, they need to be approached as a swarm. So as a multicellular organism that has no body of its own, but inhabits whole environments, whole ecosystems, whole sections of a forest, um, and has all of these permutations. And instead of having one single body, it will have the body of tribes of monkeys and species of birds. And they're kind of like a deva uh, or a nature spirit or a daemon. Like, uh, they have the behavior, according to um, computer modeling, of a top predator. And then uh, when the environment is stable, then the virus will be in... Um, in a stable and sustainable form. But then when they've looked at what happens when, say, a new troop of monkeys will invade a particular ecosystem and start to cause havoc between the existing uh, troop of monkeys, then what happens is that the virus uh, then mutates and the virulent strains of that virus will then um, become more dominant and they will infect the invading troop of monkeys in a way that makes them sick or die uh, whilst staying in a beneficent form in the existing monkeys uh, as a force to try and create ecological equilibrium. And so over the last 30 years, we've seen um, at least 30 completely new diseases emerge. And one of the primary reasons for this is because we've changed the environment so strongly. So as we've created dams, as we've created deforestation, as we have changed the atmosphere and we've changed animal populations and we're creating new animal populations with bad animal husbandry with our meat industry, then all of those practices are virilizing bacterial populations. And, um, and then the goal of those virilized bacterial populations is not terrorists. We see them as terrorists, but kind of as freedom fighters for the environment, perhaps, is, is better, as forces of ecological equilibrium. And that's, that's a very, very different way to, to see a virus um, and, a, and a new epidemic than the way in which we've been looking at them today. Wow, that's amazing. So pay attention to these freedom fighters. They're telling you that something's wrong with the environment and lose the war mentality. Like, as you said, just be nice to these guys. They're doing it for the good. That's, that, that's the truth. Every, it's like everything in life. Everyone, even the terrorists in our society today who are you know little human terrorists, they're essentially doing it for love, for a sense of belonging. Like, they, whatever it is. It's the war on life the antibiotic war on life that we have and the way in which our mentality reduces everything to a good guy and a bad guy um, is perhaps the real virus that I think is uh, more likely to kill you. And it's a virus that is like a viral meme that has infected our culture and it goes through and it changes the way we see everything. And um, it changes the way we see viruses. It changes the way we see each other. It changes the way we see the environment. Um, and it's very, very divisive. And I think that this is really the epidemic that is killing the planet, that is most likely to cause uh, myself and my children and the people that you love the greatest harm, is that it's a viral meme and it's a way of, of, of seeing and being in the world. And it's not actually just uh, nature itself, you know. Um, and so as, as you said, I think um, it's really important that as we approach healing 
as we approach uh, these these places where we have disease, where we're ill at ease, it's important that we do so um, not with that militarized magic bullet approach that is so predominant in the medical industry at this point, but in a way that seeks to restore balance in the deepest way. Now, obviously, we need to keep ourselves healthy and we need to take the herbs and medicines that are required to do so. But at the same time, we're looking for um, a sustainable global culture in which consciousness and culture can thrive. And, um, and even if we win the war against coronavirus, but we continue with the same viral meme of us versus them, then we will have uh, we'll just continue to hurtle towards um, the the perilous place that the planet is moving towards at the moment, ecologically, politically, and economically. Um, and then on the other side of that of the war mentality, then we have I guess the we're trying to manipulate even rather than just war, but we're trying to think we're doing right by supporting it. For example, probiotic, probiotics. That then we're kind of like yeah, manipulating not not allowing the environment to create its own diversity and creating essentially creating a monoculture in the gut microbiome and, and the microbiome of the body. And yeah, this, this is the, like the other end of the spectrum, but a similar approach, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, um, the, the notion that underlies uh, the Ayurvedic medicine that you practice or the Chinese medicine that I was originally trained in or public health as a whole, is this fundamental notion that disease is mismanagement of the environment. And so that means it's mismanagement of your own ecosystem when you get ill because you've been consuming too much sugar, drinking too much coffee, working too hard, not exercising enough. Or at a public health perspective, disease is mismanagement of the larger environment where you know, in the Industrial Revolution, our streets were full of polluted water and refuse. Um, in the modern environment, our air is full of uh, carcinogens. Um, but it's also mismanagement of the social, economic and political environments. So all of these pieces come together that ultimately health is about managing and balancing the environment, the environment within and the environment without. And those teachings are actually quite quite ancient and they're there at the foundation articulated in a different way in the world's great traditions in ayurvedic medicine in greek medicine in tibetan medicine and in chinese medicine that's what i really love about your work is that you do have a focus on that greater picture the society and and as professor mark cohen calls it you know well-being is the we in well-being it's so important and i really respect the work that you do and reaching out to you know other more isolated communities, less advantaged communities with all the wonderful non-for-profits you do. And yeah, increasing that collective wellness. Yeah. Very beautifully said in wellness. And um, the, one of the, one of the things that really struck me many years ago is that um, upon understanding this piece that we've just spoken of and having a, a rudimentary sense of public health and what's made us healthy and sick throughout all of history, I've understood that there can be no health in an unhealthy culture. And so when the culture is sick at a deep level, when the stories that it tells itself about who we are and the world at large are sick and twisted, then that will affect our politics, that'll affect our economics, that'll that'll infect our our treatment of the ecology, and it will ultimately create uh, uh, unhealthy individuals. 
So the idea that you can stock up on um, toilet paper, that you can stock up on paracetamol, that you can stock up on, uh, on food and somehow make a little bunker of your life and keep yourself um, away from the rest of the world is like this is the this is the the viral meme that has infected the modern consciousness when actually we know that everything is connected that we're a part of the greater web of life and that there is no separating us from the unhealthy culture and so if you want to be healthy then by all means exercise and take the herbs that um, help you to thrive but at the same time your voice is absolutely required uh, to make the culture around you a healthier place and so to, to build community and to tell stories uh, uh, that we live by that are that are not the dog-eat-dog uh, kind of Darwinian story that, um, that is commonly told today, to tell other stories, to find the old stories that knit us together again and help us to find our place in the larger web of life. Yeah, and as you alluded to, like within that is that's having that relationship with the society and the environment has an influence on your mind and your consciousness and your emotions. And in the Vedic tradition, you know, we, there's kind of a hierarchy. It goes body and then mind and then consciousness. So if your mind and your consciousness are like the king, well, consciousness is king, but mind is also king of the body. So when that is in balance and harmony and, um, you know, feeling supreme contentedness essentially and harmony, then the body will follow. And definitely if everyone's stressing about, trying to isolate themselves or fear in panic, then definitely the body will follow. Indeed it will. You know, in relation to panic, without having to go um, as deep philosophically as you and I have just gone, because that's the kind of guys that we are, right? I think the, the, the knowledge that is just the orthodox knowledge at the moment about the nature of coronavirus should really settle down our fear as well. And that is that... Um, for people underneath 60, um, at the moment, the statistics that I can see are that the death rate um, is 0.2% of hospitalizations. And so the hospitalizations are the bad cases, right? There's lots and lots of people that get coronavirus that stay home that are, you know, just mildly sick or asymptomatic that aren't like terribly sick. But the ones that are sick enough to end up in a hospital bed the death rate that we have there is 0.2%. And so... Hospital rate, right? That's right. 0.2... Not death rate. The, no, the death rate of hospitalizations is 0.2%. Okay. And so of all the people that are hospitalized, less than 1%, 0.2%, end up dying, right? And so that's... Um, and so the exception to that is if people are elderly or if people are already immunocompromised and sick, then this virus, as well as the common cold or the flu or, you know, any other kind of infections or as well as a range of different stresses, um, can be that which carries them off, right? Um, but I don't, and, and, and in those populations, then you, that's where you'll read the, the higher percentages, 6 7 8% uh, death rate in, um, in the weak and vulnerable. But this is always the case, um, and that's why something like measles, which uh, nobody has any complications from in a in a well nourished uh, culture like Australia, could um, 
produced very significant problems in the past, 100, 150 years ago, or in some malnourished populations in third world economies, it can still kill people, right? So if you're sick enough any, and you're weak enough and you're malnourished enough, then um, all of these things can be the, the cause that carries you off. But overall, coronavirus is not uh, the big bad Ebola virus uh, that people uh, have been fearing would be coming. Um, it is is not that at all. It's medically not very scary in the scheme of things. Yeah, and as you said, like with as with all viruses and bacterial infections and flus, it comes down to your immunity, right? If you, and that's one aspect, immunity, and definitely the your state of mind, and definitely if you are fearing it, like like any disease, if you're fearing it, if you think of it, uh, then you're basically inviting that disease. Again, mind is king. You have the wherever your you know attention goes, energy flows, and it happens just with other diseases, not non-pandemic diseases, uh, non-spreadable diseases like even diabetes. Those who think, "Oh, my father's got diabetes, and my grandmother's got diabetes, oh, I'm going to get diabetes," you're inviting it. So you're strong. Look, get realistic, get uh, informed about the statistics, as Jimmy's just mentioned, and it's it's definitely exaggerated. And this exaggeration was done in the, with the bird flu in 2005, the swine flu in 2009. And you mentioned Ebola, measles, there was Zika in 2016. Like a lot of these have been highly exaggerated. And we can go into a bit later. We'll stick on the medical side for now, but I'd love to hear your view. I've done some research into the conspiracies and what how actually this coronavirus started and the source of it. But um, let's let's stay with the medical side and the, the viruses and microbiome for now. The piece that I would add to what you're saying, um, just another way to articulate the point that you're making, is that um, when our body is in a fight or flight response, then the immune system is down-regulated. And so if you imagine that your ancestors were very, very sick, uh, dying of some uh, infection uh, in a cave, right? That somehow they'd, um, even though infection rates were much lower at that point in the hunter-gatherer society, but imagine they they had some septic uh, infection in their leg from a woolly mammoth uh, injury, right? Or a saber-toothed tiger bite. Um, so um, they're so their their body is feverish. They're so exhausted from fighting this infection that they can barely open their eyes as they lie in the back of their cave. And then at that moment, whilst all of their energy is going into that immune response, a bear walks into the cave and their body makes a very quick assessment and says, we're going to die of uh, this infection in the next day or two, but we're going to die as bear food in the next 10 or 15 seconds. Switch off the immune system. Switch off the reproductive system. Switch off everything, in fact, except the legs and run and suddenly that person that was too weak to be able to stand has an enormous amount of energy and can fight for their life or can run can run a great distance and climb up trees and so that response is still there in the modern world and the bear in the cave today is perhaps the coronavirus it comes to you through your social media that's the cave that it comes into but it's still nonetheless it triggers ancient pathways and those ancient pathways of fear down-regulate the immune response. And so medically, there's a very good case um, 
behind what you were saying that can be articulated uh, in different words as well. And that's the importance of, you know, having good routine, good practice, regular meditation to have parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest and digest, the opposite to that flight or fight, active all the time. And as a culture today, we do have this flight or fight, this sympathetic nervous system activated way too often, way too much. And and when something, and that's, that's why you see who gets feared and then get, goes into panic when something like a coronavirus hits and who who was like who are like the rocks who are like the people who are like you know have a give a little smirk at it a little smile and and adapt you know when these this, it's a fascinating insight into human nature watching this all unfold through social media and through the streets because us you know humans are entering into the unknown and and losing control you all of a sudden can't fly somewhere you can't get things shipped to you and it's just you know losing control like control is highly overrated it's quite an, an opposed to evolution so watching this all all unfold it really in all all circumstances in all epidemics and even in ayurveda and the shastras the classical text they had epidemics um huge epidemics and that they were more related with the environment um which is this essentially but uh you know those who you, you have to adapt it's a test of our adaptability it is indeed um and um today what you're much what you're likely to die on is a lifestyle mediated disease that you have lived and eaten and worked your way into it 92 percent of all deaths in this country are lifestyle mediated non-communicable non-infectious chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease and so these are the things that are actually going to kill you um, and along the way, the things that have caused you the greatest morbidity, the greatest suffering, are likely to be autoimmune conditions that you also live into or have sort of poisoned yourself into. And so the fear that we have at the moment of infectious diseases is, um, is out of proportion with the actual epidemics that are carrying us off in droves. And so as a parent, of children, I'm not afraid of measles. I'm not afraid of whooping cough. I'm not afraid of tetanus. Um, but you know, I I think parents should be afraid of uh, like or be educated and cautious around developmental diseases. You know, the the level of um, autistic spectrum disorders in Australia, we've got about one in thirty of our little boys that have a full blown autism. And those are the ones that have full-blown crippling autism. Um, but we have something more like one in six, one in seven that are actually on the spectrum and that may not be able to form adequate bonds, that may not be able to have deeply fulfilling relationships and therefore not have children or not, uh, not experience love in an ongoing capacity because their empathy is low. And, and, and that's not a psychological condition. That's not because their chil those children weren't parented well. That's a, a biochemical condition. Those children are the canaries in the mine shaft. They're suffering from environmental pollution and they're suffering from inflammation through the gut and the brain that's happening through changes in our food supply as well. So these are the things that are not spoken of because there's not a you know $3 billion Tamiflu kind of product waiting in the wings to help with a lifestyle-mediated disease. So there's not a large media circus around it, right? but they are actually the diseases that are of much, much greater prevalence. You know, like um, we still speak about polio, but it's 
at its absolute heights, at the worst that it got to, then polio was somewhere between 7 and 10 cases um, out of 100,000 people, somewhere between 7 and and 10, you know, every 100,000 people. So it wasn't 1 in 100, it wasn't 1 in 1,000, it was sort of 7 in 100,000 at the worst that it got to. And of those, 98% of them were symptom-free, right? (laughs) You know, they got a cold and they didn't get crippled or anything like that. But today the autism, autism rate, 1 in 30, is so much higher than polio, and yet the hype that we have about that particular disease 60 years on, 70 years on, is still much higher than an epidemic that is truly crippling and every bit as heartbreaking as polio ever was, but just on a much, much higher scale. You brought it up. Let's go into it. Like, you know, with all these pandemics, and as I said, even with the bird flu, the swine flu, and just funnily with the bird flu, I want to mention something I heard recently was um, when that happened, I heard this in India. My teacher told me that apparently they sent all the chickens to um to India, and people were buying a kilo of chicken for about ten to fifteen rupees a kilo, which is about twenty to thirty cents, and they were cooking it all, and then none of them got sick because because they cook it all well and they use the spices. And also, it was an exaggerated um, pandemic. So we've again, once again, we've been indoctrinated into this fear paradigm around viruses not based on science and then they're bringing out you know uh, or with coronavirus not yet but you know they'll bring out some intervention whether it's a drug or a vaccine with no proof of safety and also no proof of the efficacy and how it manages and with the with the coronavirus it we know it it originated in in um in china um in a in a in a market at a wholesale seafood market called Wuhan Hunan, and they actually investigated and they found that all the the media was saying you know blame the snakes and the bat soup and all these animals that were being sold. They found none at all carrying the virus, but actually China's first maximum security lab, which is a biosecurity level four lab designed to study the world's most dangerous pathogens, opened its doors in that very same city, and that that was the epicenter of this coronavirus outbreak so and then there's you know years before or or a year before there was you know um some biosafety consultants expressing concerns about viral threats coming from this biosafety laboratory and yeah there's if you if anyone's interested in looking at that that have you have you come across any of that jimmy have you looked into that i have i haven't looked into it deeply um and um but i've certainly seen some of the same um points from a, a range of uh, reputable sources about the the possibility that that's where it came from, um, and and I think whether it did or whether it whether it would, whether it came from bat soup, which it didn't, or whether it came from a leaked uh, uh, bioengineering laboratory, then um, underneath what it still came from is a viral meme which has taken over our culture, which has displ- changed the environment. So if the viruses in the bat culture have become virulent, it's because we've changed the environment and then that will happen. Viruses will move from animals to human beings. It happens an enormous amount um, and we're not separate from them. We never will be and we can't, you know, if we want to kill viruses, maybe we should kill all the animals on the planet. We should sterilise every single 
square inch of soil, you know, uh, until that there's no, no there's no vectors for that disease. That's the kind of viral meme thinking of when it's taken to its full extreme that um, I think is the real problem. And underneath the um, bioengineering, we also have um, a mistaken confidence in our separation from life and our ability to understand the complexities of the rainforest and the complexities of the rainforest within a single cell. And it's like the, the story of the... Uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, um, or the story of Frankenstein, where um, the stolen godfire that we have, you know, gets out of hand. And we think we're wise enough to use the wizard's wand. We think, you know, we have these godlike powers. Give my creation life, we say. And then all the stories speak about the way in that which that then gets out of hand. And so we have this situation where we have great technological skill and power incredible power in so many ways and yet we have all too little wisdom in our current global culture to be able to wield that incredible power and sometimes those powers do incredibly positive things modern techno medicine and uh, and a range of technologies can do some incredibly positive things but at the same time if we have a culture that is a data driven culture rather than a wisdom driven culture then sooner or later these kinds of things are going to happen. So I don't think it matters too much, to me at least, whether it was uh, deliberately released, whether it accidentally escaped, whether it came from uh, an animal population. At the end of the day, what is driving it is, uh, from my perspective, an unhealthy global culture. And that's where the change needs to take place. Yeah. Wonderful. And let's speak about how we can make that global culture and microbiome more healthy because although it's, yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's happening in, in us humans. Our microbiome is not up to the standard that it should be. Um, the, spe- the amount of species we have are definitely not adequate, most of us at least, due to over-sanitization and poor food chain and environment and all this, all this. But the the planet as well like we know now it's, it's raining like glyphosate which is the herbicide pesticide which is extensively used by far it's a, it's actually an antibiotic painted as an antibiotic it's not actually a pesticide but it's like huge and then of course antibiotics in the food chain so our environment is is also changing and that's why you know some people may uh, are developing i guess uh imbalance is a bit weird word for microbiome but microbial i guess not disharmony and um yeah so the planet's going to be fine the earth's going to be fine um forget about save the earth it's save the humans so how yeah how can because we because there are you know virulent pathogens and that can tend to things like i guess lyme disease and um you know certain yeasts and uh even coronavirus, if it's if you happen to be, you know, there, or if it if it does become virulent, so so yeah, I guess it got, it's back to what we were talking about earlier is is increasing our the health of our microbiome and the environment, and what are some things we can be doing for, I guess, both individual and and environmental health. So at an individual level, the thing that um, uh, a, a possible lens. To, to apply is 
um, to see the way in which um, microbial movement is something like the um, the uh, ecological refugees. And so when we find, um, you know, a whole range of boat people, particularly uh, potentially arriving on the shores of a European country or an Australian country, then the, um, the process is how do we integrate these people and these beings into the broader ecosystem that exists here? That's the goal. How do we find a place for them? How do they find their niche? And so when becoming sick, it's a kind of a similar approach is that I think is a better way to think about it, right? And so um, at the start, when that migration takes place, then there's a lot of activity in the body. You know, you could have diarrhea, you could uh, develop a fever, you could get chills, you could have aches and pains. There's all sorts of things happening um, as you uh, receive these um, microbial uh, eco-asylum seekers, right? They're seeking asylum within you, within your microbiome uh, or within your genome itself. And ultimately what they want is a place to live and a sustainable place to live. And, and, and in the end, that's what we've got. Our microbiome is this great culture. It's like the United States of America or the EU that exists in your gut where somehow everybody's found their place and they've found a way to get along and there's a harmony that happens. And when large migrations take place, then that is temporarily disrupted. Um, but um, if, we, uh, if we approach it in, in, in healthy ways, then niches can be found and, uh, and we can return to a, le a level of, of community and of homeostasis. Now, when I say healthy measures, I think rather than seeking to kill the asylum seekers and refugees, rather than um, having the model that we have of terrorists, you know, whoever is coming is a terrorist, <laughs> um, seeing them as, you know, queue jumpers and all of these things. It's the same model that we see politically as we see microbially, as we see medically. It's the same lens that we're looking through here. Then what we're looking is how do I... How do I return my system to a dynamic homeostasis, um, a balance here? And so what happens there with uh, traditional medicine is that it depends upon the symptoms that you see to try to return the whole system to, 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 to balance. So at the start, what you want to do is have uh, a robust and healthy, thriving ecosystem inside you. And so when how you do that depends on who you are, which is what you know very much in Ayurveda, right? Is it maybe you need to eat more food. Maybe the next person needs to eat less food. Maybe you need to exercise until you sweat. Maybe you need to do very gentle Tai Chi and yoga. Maybe you need more spicy food. Maybe you need more sweet food, you know? This is your domain very much with Ayurveda. Um, Ayurveda. And this is what creates the kind of thriving ecosystem to start with, that your system is in balance and you're working with it not according to someone else's idea, but according to what works for you as an individual. And that's the first phase of how to be in a good place when the eco-asylum seekers and refugees arrive on your doorstep. Does that make sense so far? Totally. And that is essentially just such a fountain. It seems like 
and we haven't gone into detail and we don't have to because it's seen what Jimmy just said is just for overall health and and it is for overall health thus for our microbiome because most of our body is made up of microbes rather than human DNA and RNA and we are mainly microbes so if we do things and we don't have to go into the detail and we can some we, we should go into some but all the things you know all the things we talk about on this podcast all the things that I talk about that Jimmy talks about um, this is promoting overall health and when we have all of our health especially with the mind then the mind is even the mind can change the state of the microbiome we know if we have a a, a jar of yogurt on the table and we have a fight with each other with the jar in the middle that bad microbes will proliferate and the microbes will, will will diminish so all all our microbes whether it's in our body and our food is sensitive to everything we do and uh, even sensitive to our mind and our thoughts and our you know, and our mood and if we're in panic or if we're relaxed and calm and you know calm parasympathetic nervous system state very true um and so there are some herbs um there's classes of herbs that um that go in this same level here of um, maintaining that healthy balance, right? And so they aren't herbal antibiotics um, at this particular category. They're classes of herbs that are um, that have an adaptogenic quality in some regard, um, and they're different in different cultures, and they each have their different focus points. But they do something very broad, like they regulate uh, butter in a deep level. They uh, to use the language of Ayurveda, they they nourish ojas or prana, right? And so these kinds of herbs are the herbs that go alongside diet and exercise and state of mind, right? And um, and so I have a herb that I call the ultimate multi-immune, which go a formula that goes at this level of prevention, and it's a good one to have for prevention of all sorts of infectious diseases because it nourishes your chi, it nourishes your prana, it nourishes your ojas. These these deep uh, vital centers. And it contains herbs that are like um, a Western herb that comes from the Sami people as Angelica Archangelica. And we used it during the great plagues um, in the Middle Ages. Whereas in um, Ayurveda, a vata regulating herb that is also used that has immunological activity is ashwagandha. So it's, very, it's one of these rare herbs that can be used um, through chemotherapy as well. Um, in China, the herb is astragalus. Right? It tonifies the spleen chi, the gut-based immunity. Um, and another one from Ayurveda is kapikachu, is makunu, which regulates vata, is used commonly for Parkinson's, but is a precursor to dopamine. And dopamine, all of the immune cells all have dopamine receptors. So makunu, by going in and uh, uh, hitting those dopamine receptors on the immune, on the white blood cells, motivates immune function, right? So we could put in some other ones, like some of the mushrooms, like cordyceps and reishi, and also Japanese knotweed, um, which is famous for Lyme's disease, but also belongs in this category. So we've got these broad herbs that are like chicken soup for the soul that nourish our deep, deep centers. They don't have a specific action of fighting infection or taking away heat or fever or anything like this. They're more about investing in uh, a balanced and healthy ecosystem. Yeah, more more strengthening more like an Ayurveda we call some of them are Rasayana. So it just in general increases longevity. And I really think, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful honor. And if you get the chance to take herbs like this preventatively and take for a long time, because 
you know, it's not like an extracts, um, it's whole herbs. So it's like food and it, it is something, you know, some people say, oh, we shouldn't need to take herbs. You know, we can do everything, but really it's like, well, what you shouldn't need to eat healthy food. Like this is like ultimate food. This is like one, one beautiful treasure and gift from nature. And, and if you have either, either you need it for your health or you just have the deserving power to be able to prevent and even feel more vitality um with these with these herbs which yeah most if you know find the right herbs for you if, if it's a gentle herbs like jimmy's mentioned that mostly everyone can take and but again that that is suitable for you um then get on the herbs regularly and and boost the immune, immunity boost your ogis as you said which is like the refined product of digestion the your vital essence essentially and your immunity your reproduction um and so then in the, the if you would become sick then and let's take coronavirus as the picture here um then there's uh, there's not a single medicine for coronavirus because uh like all um infections and all illnesses there's a wave that it goes through right and the medicines that are prescribed um need to match the the phase of the wave form right and so in the first phase of infection with coronavirus then you're likely to have a sore throat and maybe a mild fever. And at this particular point in time, then um, these symptoms in Ayurveda are pitta symptoms, which means they're heat-based inflammatory symptoms, right? Um, and um, and a lot of people, that's all they're going to get. They're just going to get a sore throat and a fever, and then they're going to be better afterwards. And at this point, then we'd be looking at very particular kinds of medicines to help soothe that heat, to soothe the soreness of the throat, and to help regulate the immune response as it goes through that fever. And so some of these medicines are um, in the West called diaphoretics. They open the pores and help the heat to come out. Um, and uh, famous ones that we have from the West are uh, lemon balm, melissa, which is an antiviral medicine, but is also a diaphoretic. It increases sweating and helps open the pores so the heat can come out. Or elderflower and elderberry. They are um, elderflower is a diaphoretic and uh, elderberry and elderflower are both well-researched and very famous as antivirals. And they're very gentle and they can be given to children very safely. So in the first phases, this is where you could be using um, medicines such as this. Um, we could also draw upon uh, herbs uh, that are used in Ayurveda like rose um, or mint or jasmine as well in this phase. But then by the time it comes on to the second phase, then you're looking for different medicines altogether. At that point, then we start to see um, the emergence of a cough and perhaps some aches and fat pains and maybe the fever has gone and gotten deeper. So at this point, then there's different medicines that need to go in deeper. It's the level of in the technicalities of this in Ayurveda again, um, and correct me if I'm wrong because this is your domain more than mine, is the level of the datu or the tissue in which pitta has gained entrance to. So we could have pitta-gata-rasa in the first phase and pitta-gata-rakta in the second phase or pitta-gata-mamsa. It's going into the level of the muscles. And so from these are different ways of saying in traditional medicine of how deep the inflammation and heat has got. Is it just in your pores, in your skin? Or has it gotten into your muscles? Or has it gotten all the way into your bones, right? And this is, this is the Ayurvedic way of treating according to those layers. And all traditional medicines, medical systems have uh, a model such as this. And so in this phase, 
then we're looking for deeper medicines, medicines that will enter into a deeper layer of the, of the organism. Um, and here uh, is where I make a medicine called biracillin, which has a range of, my, uh, of, medicine, of herbs um, that affect this layer. Um, and um, some of these are local medicines from the Australian uh, rainforest, like lemon myrtle um, and lemon tea tree and uh, aniseed myrtle. Um, and uh, also we here have the wonderful olive leaf extract. I have a great olive tree growing in my herb garden. And this has profound antiviral uh, effects and a heat clearing uh, uh, capacity that goes into the liver, that goes into the blood and helps uh, the body respond to infections that have gone deeper at that point. But because there's also a cough that's taking place, then we have medicines, uh, again, these are, uh, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with them in Ayurvedic medicine, but usnia, a lichen that is used all over the world, a kind of lichen, um, has a profound antiviral action and goes into the chest. And in uh, the Americas, we have this herb uh, bone set um, that is used um, because it was used for bone breaking fever. Um, and these are bitter medicines that go into the lungs and help when the cough has gotten that far down. Even with the fever, like in Ayurveda, there's, there's 500 types of fevers and 20, 20 main types of fevers. So it all depends on which dosha is, is aggravated. And usually, essentially, it's, it's mixed with the agni, the digestive fire, which has now left its place of the alimentary tract and going to the wherever, to the skin or to any other uh, datu, any other tissue. And that's why you, know, you get hot. That's it's trying to leave the body. And as Jimmy said, you know, you get take the herbs that allow the heat to dissipate properly, and and don't eat. The, one of the best things for fever, and this is fever, not viral viruses, is to is to fast because then the agni can just do its job of digesting the ama or the toxins that are accumulated, and it's not even there. Your digestive fire is out of its place, so you definitely don't want to the job of eating food when it's trying to dissipate the toxins out of your body and the heat um and yeah you know in in, in ayurveda you know coming from me like again definitely herbs are a huge part and and very effective and i want to yeah touch on kind of herbs verse not so verse but in accordance with western medicine because i find you know people come to me with fevers viral infections there's fantastic herbs that that take it away and they they don't need to take antibiotics um, but, you know, with, with me personally, my practice, I, I use formulas as Ayurveda likes to use, like quite complex formulas, which I'm not able, I don't have the intelligence and intellect to create. Also, herbology is such a huge topic. Jimmy's absolutely uh, fantastic and very knowledgeable herbs and very much integrated with growing the herbs himself and processing me. I leave it to my teachers because I'm not at that level. They make formulas with 30 to 40 herbs even one of them that I use for fever and antiviral is I've got over 120 herbs and yeah. So the, and that along again with boosting the immune and then boosting the upper respiratory system and the, and the lungs with the classical Ayurvedic formulation for those who want to see is Dashmula Katu Trayam Kashayam. It's a beautiful one, especially alongside it's a decoction and that not only is a medicine itself, but these decoctions, which we call Kashayams, when you mix with another herb, they also deliver that other herb and they kind of have a wonderful synergistic effect. Um, so, yeah, definitely there's so much in the herbs with all these cases. And I, interestingly, I don't want to go into it, but I recently got, recently means of maybe six months ago or more, I got, um, got a few tick, tick bites and I, I knew, and it was the first time that 
it was not the first time I got bitten, but one of them, I think I got four. I was having one weekend and one of them, I, I, um, I knew it was not right. And, you know, it's very hard to test for Lyme disease unless you keep the tick, which I didn't. And I was speaking with my teacher and he gave me all these herbs and I was, I was going to just go and experiment with, with just going down the herbal route. Um, but I did in as well, I did take antibiotics for, for the first time since I can't remember, definitely since I've been on this health journey, I took the common doxycycline antibiotic and so unfortunately I couldn't test if the herbs, but I really do think, and that Lyme disease is, or getting born with, uh, bitten with an infectious tick is one of the cases where I think antibiotics could be used, but we're going to talk about antibiotics in a bit. But um, my point is the herbs, I mean, I, I see people with urinary tract infections and, you know, chest infections, severe colds, flus, and the herbs do it fantastically and really just at least try that first. Something as acute and kind of you need to, it's better to act fast with Lyme disease is a different situation. So I advise you guys to contact a good practitioner who has quality herbs like Jimmy or myself and, and get on those and try them before. And let's talk about antibiotics because it's just extremely, and we talked about it, but I, I just want to uh, emphasize the fact that it really should be last resort, perhaps in life-saving conditions, I mean, life-threatening emergencies, as well as I think if you're getting bit and you have acute Lyme disease and it's very soon after the bite where you kind of know it's infectious or highly suspect, I think it can be applied there. So what's definitely, I, I want you to talk about this because people are taking antibiotics too, too much and too quickly they're going to that. And it really, they need it. As we've talked about, I think you're aware of the, the dangers and why you don't want to take them to disrupt your microbiome and, and leave you susceptible to things down the track so yeah what's your view on on where antibiotics sits in this health system and society um good question i think antibiotics are incredibly precious medicines um they're really 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 precious but they like you said they need to be reserved for saving lives and so um when i need antibiotics um or when my children need antibiotics and so far my 13 year old boy and uh, 11 year old girl have not ever had antibiotics they've been sick plenty of times but they've never needed antibiotics but if they do i want those antibiotics to work and i don't want them uh, i don't want all the bacteria to be resistant to them and so i want to save them for those times when it's a life or death situation um, and as you also alluded to the the cost of using a kind of nuclear approach to common infections is really quite significant. Um, and we know now that a single course of antibiotics produces measurable changes in the probiome for two years, right? So that's a single course. Um, and, um, and those are measurable changes. That means when our measurements get better, that figure is likely to get higher. That means it, in a couple of years, it could be three years that are measurable changes. And in a couple of years after that, it could be four years that there are measurable changes. And maybe when we get, you know, really good uh, measurements, we can say, well, you can always detect the impact of whether or not an ecosystem has had, you know, Agent Orange dumped upon it or nuclear testing done in that area once your testing gets sufficiently um, uh, sensitive. So um, common infections 
even if you feel really, really unwell, require common sense. They require rest. They require uh, common herbs. And they don't require antibiotics. Now, the second point is that most of your common infections are viral and they definitely don't require antibiotics. And we really know this to be the case. Now, in Australia, despite the government standards being, I think, um, uh, needing review, right, um, even against those government standards, Australian GPs prescribe nine times as many antibiotics as the government says are necessary. Nine times. So there is an enormous amount of antibiotics that are being prescribed that are not necessary. And the net effect of that is to virilize bacteria so that the bacteria become immune to that antibiotic and not just immune to that antibiotic, but immune to several more generations of antibiotics that we haven't even invented. So we find the studies confirm this, is that you introduce an antibiotic and then the bacteria gets immune to that and gets immune to like four other generations of antibiotics yet to be uh, um, created. It's almost like we've started logging, lobbing uh, bottles over a wall at them and then they develop strategies for drop, stopping things that go over the top of the wall. And so it doesn't matter whether they're bottles or bricks or Molotov cocktails, they've got shields above their head at that point. So the bacteria are incredibly intelligent. And the final thing I'll add to that is that all bacteria can swap genetic information with all bacteria. So we're not dealing with a series of different single bacterial species here, right? We're dealing with a worldwide web, like a single meta-distributed organism where DNA flows ceaselessly, like a stock exchange across and we've got these organisms that are as different as lions and zebras trading genetic information on a free microbial stock exchange. They can even leave the information of how to uh, create um, uh, resistance to a particular drug behind after they're dead for someone else to come and pick up, right? And so when you're misusing antibiotics, you're doing an incredible disservice to the entire planet you know, you're breeding virulent bacteria and you're undermining very, very precious drugs in addition to what you're doing to your own health. I just want to also add similarly, a similar mentality to this war mentality is with the cancer, is with, you know, where kill, kill, kill to cancer cells, but everyone has cancer cells, right? And usually they're just performing their regular job of apoptosis or cell suicide. They naturally die and, and then the stem cells take over. That's what should be happening. But then obviously with the cancer patients, their cells aren't dying. They're actually proliferating and multiplying and growing because, because the environment's not friendly. That's the, again, on the, the foundation is the environment that the cancer cells like, oh, it's not, and they feel isolated. It feels rejected. It feels, so it has to multiply because it's feeling isolated. And again, we need to work on the environment. Absolutely. I think, um, the, the way in which we speak about microbes and the way in which we speak uh, about um, terrorists and refugees um, is all with a kind of, and the way in which we speak about agriculture is all with a militarised vocabulary. Um, so we're, we're trying to kill it. And so people say, oh, I'm fighting cancer. I want to kill it. I won't let it beat me. But 
the cancer is you. <laughs> That's your cells in there, right? And there's nothing else but you, you know, and so and you are love. So we we have this situation, like you said, like you beautifully explained, is that every cell in the body was once and is very much like a single free living organism, like a bacteria. And we can and it, it exists in the great community that is the multicellular organism that is you. But each one has its own degree of autonomy. And the cancerous cell is uh, is a cell that is really um, swimming in the most, is the most damaged cell, is the loneliest cell, the cell that is, um, that is walled off from the rest of the community and surrounded by toxic wastes, both biological and metabolic and industrial. It's, it's, it's in this area of inflammation and neglect and disconnection from the whole greater flow of life. And then disconnected from you, then it, it, it cannot surrender its life into the larger whole of which it is a part. And so that's that process called apoptosis that you spoke about, where a cell gets to the end and it says, I've had my time, I've had my life, and it, it, euthanizes, it euthanizes itself. It ends its own life because it understands that it's part of something greater, right? And this is the problem, is that this is why uh, d- descriptions of humanity like cancer are, they're very damaging in a lot of ways because human, human beings are, are a part of nature and we belong here, right? But on the other hand, there's this sense of having lost the knowledge that we are a part of something greater, having lost the connection of the great community to which of being that we belong to. And that community is the human community, but it is also the non-human community, right? It is the entire planet, and it is even larger than the planet. It is the cosmos of which we are a part, the cosmos that birthed this planet, that birthed us. And so I think we definitely need to change the way in which we we, the story that we're telling about humanity, the story that we're telling about uh, bacteria, and the story that we're telling about cancer. And in the end, um, all of those stories are fragmented stories. They're broken stories that don't see the connection between things. And this is the beautiful thing about the Ayurveda that you practice, my friend, is that it's deeply embedded into the larger Vedic philosophy. And that deep Vedic philosophy tells us that there's just one being here. There's just one reality. Is that all these things, even though they look different, trees and rocks and planets and stars and pandas and humans, at underneath that, there's just this commonality, which starts to sound a lot like quantum physics, right? And it's a quantum physics of being, and it's a quantum physics of consciousness, and it's a quantum physics of love and bliss. And these are the kind of ways in which we need to immunize ourselves against the viral memes that are truly killing this planet and are uh, are causing heartbreak and heartache uh, and illness and disease in our human communities as well. If if your body is in that state or you're in that environment, get comfortable, get, get your, get, get your nervous system, get your body, get your mind in a state of comfort so that it can restore that, those mechanisms. And in Ayurveda, there's a word called Shmiti. It means memory. And those cancer cells, those virus cells, those coronavirus cells, whatever they are, they have the memory to do their job properly. And we have to awaken that and provide the environment and the space and the, the place for that, that cell to remember its job and do what it's meant to be doing. And that's what Shmiti is. That's what we have to enliven. And everyone has the memory, even if it's a deep chronic condition, 
you still have the memory. You were born basically perfectly healthy. You have the memory there. Even if you weren't born per- perfectly healthy, maybe you were missing an organ, you have the memory on a cellular level. So bring that back and enliven that and get comfortable, get your body comfortable. Then it will start to heal itself and do the job that it's meant to be doing rather than being virulent. Well said. Well said. Okay. Anything else do you want to mention on the microbiome? That life is uncomfortable, but um, we need to try to find our way, our, our peace with that to make our, uh, uh, to become at ease um, with the discomfort that surrounds us. You know, the Buddha saying, you know, uh, life is suffering, you know, and that Jesus is nailed to a cross, you know, there's this sense of the tragedy of the human condition um, and, and we're ill at ease you know, regardless of whether or not there's anything in it wrong with our body, there's this larger piece of feeling ill at ease in the world at large. And the fundamental disease um, is not a, a cold or arthritis or bad digestion. The fundamental disease is a disease of consciousness, a disease of culture, uh, a disease of narrative and mythology about how we see ourselves. And so that's why when we go back to the deep teachings, whether they are the classical teachings of the West, teachings from Empedocles and Parmenides and Heraclitus, or whether you're going to the East and you're going into the deep teachings of the Vedas or the the Taoists, right? Those deep teachings are a medicine. They're the deepest medicine, the ultimate medicine. All of those tantras and shastras, they're the ones that help put us at ease and uh, can reorientate the culture at large so that we can have a healthy culture. Because as I said before, there can be no individual health in an unhealthy culture. I love that. Getting to those sources, those traditions to make us at ease. They're like the, they're like the, the big papa bears and the mamas. They will comfort us. Just listen to them. We're the ones so detached and got our heads going around a million miles. They're like the, the, the stable rocks that have the wisdom so beautiful. Thanks, Jimmy. If people, um, so how can people connect with you and learn more from you? And I know like definitely your Facebook is the primary. Jimmy's got an amazing Facebook following. It's just a very dedicated following. He does the fantastic posts. Are you like, is that an official page or will you eventually max out on the number of people that are allowed to follow you? It's Matt. I can't have any more friends, but you can follow me. Um, and um, it's definitely a good place to be able to hear more of uh, conversations like this and articles that I write. Um, and um, if you want to, to try to make an appointment, you can just jump on there and uh, book in and go through. My PA is available there and you can make an appointment with me if that was necessary. Um, otherwise, you can have a look at my uh, website for some podcasts uh, where this will be featured as well and some uh, webinars um, to find out teaching opportunities. And so if you would like to study traditional medicine, and you'd like to do so in a way that goes deeper than biochemistry, um, that digs down into the deep cultural law and the philosophy, the love of wisdom that underpins real medicine. So we get that medicine of soul and spirit, as well as that pragmatic medicine of helping people when they're in health crises. Um, then you can reach out and find uh, the opportunities where I'll be teaching and mentoring people, whether they're at the beginning of their journey or their experienced practitioners looking to go just deeper. Beautiful. And I forgot to mention to you, Jimmy, you're the first guest i've had as a uh repeat guest so i'm sorry uh, about that i'm very honored. i'm sure yeah i'm sure there'll be many more and and i definitely plan to because you've there's so many areas of health you have such wisdom and 
a lot of experience and yeah i look forward to sharing your wisdom with with others in the future so thanks man thank you so much dylan it's always a pleasure to speak with you that's right you're empowered you're strong your mind will lead the way and do not become one of the few that panic so i really hope you're empowered hope you enjoyed it isn't he a wonderful speaker check out his other episode and also that's another episode on the vital Vader show and also he did around this time will be released on the super feast podcast with mason taylor jimmy and mason talking about coronavirus and other viruses so you can get more knowledge get more wisdom more empowerment so i really hope you've taken home really what is microbiome what are viruses and empower yourself with a different way to look at them and experience them and interact with them then ultimately that determines whether you'll be affected by them or not um, in some circumstances so i mentioned i would talk about the herbs just briefly so you can you might want to take a pen and paper um, these will be on the show notes like everything check out the show notes but some general herbs i recommend okay so there's a herb on my site called anun seed yog and these are all herbs by the way produced by my teachers um their family of ayurvedic doctors they've been healing generations and generations and they specialize in creating these uh, personalized individualized formulas which can be given to a broad spectrum of in certain conditions but really we're using precious formulas and purification procedures that hardly anyone uses that's what makes their herbs highly effective and unique so a general one is called anansid yoga or nutritious immune boosting bliss you can find that on the online shop it boosts the immunity particularly the lungs generally good for everyone it's a honey base herbs um yeah just a great thing you take a teaspoon it's very tasty sweet herb you can learn about that that's a general one we've got shodhanavati which is a general purification tablet detoxifies the body regularly making sure your detox mechanisms are working well making sure your three doshas are balanced that's an amazing herb so many people love it um yeah just we've got to regularly be detoxifying and that helps with that um, so especially if you're having issues with any of the tree mala, the three weights, sweat, urine, feces, not doing that properly. You definitely need to be doing that on a regular basis in consistent amounts. So, and there's Nasaka, of course, nose drops, sniffing oil up your nose, something that I highly advocate to protect your sinuses from any pollutants, whether it's a virus infection, environmental pollutant, smoke whatever it is very good to protect yourself and also strengthen your upper upper respiratory system which is the gateway to the lungs and you know real entrance points for all of these microbes are through the nose it starts at the turbines of the nostril and not only does it protect virulent and pathogenic microbes but it also enhances your ability to welcome the good microbes and breathe in your biome so that's a wonderful daily ritual we should be doing. Sniffing oil up the nose. The ritual is called Nasya in Ayurveda. It's a daily routine. And the herb, the oil, medicated oil produced by my teachers is called Nasika. And those are some main ones for, for just general boosting and preventative. And then, of course, if you do get a sick, if you do get cold, virus, flu, anything, you take blue pills, a product called blue pills. Um, that helps with that. Move the lymph, detoxify, virus, antiviral. And then there is also prandara which is a wonderful remedy to have for many things including parasites flu cold headache fever pain it's fantastic so check out these things check out all the other herbs on the vital Vader shop and of course jimmy mentioned some herbs um, these are more more formulas so 
Thank you so much for joining me. You could just please share this episode, take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, tag me and Dr. Jimmy Wallenbim. This needs to get out and we need to really create balance in the collective consciousness regarding this pandemic and viruses and microbiome in general. Thanks.